Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by the World Gold Council. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for discussion, but the final control over the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with John Reed, who is the Chief Market Strategist at the World Gold Council. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Arthur. Great to be here today. Fascinated to see where this conversation is going to go. (laughs) <laughs> well, most of the people we have on our podcast uh, have a background in investing and finance. And of course, you, you have a long career in that as well. But I think you actually started out in, in the mining industry, um, which, which comes in handy in your current role, I, I, I presume. Yes. Well, when I was thinking about what choices to, to take for university, I was a bit stumped, really. I had an engineering background in that my father was a was a ship's engineer he was actually basically the second most important engineer on the queen elizabeth uh, the big liner that went backwards and forwards so i'd been surrounded by bits of metal and and projects around the house since i was a kid so i was quite interested in in, in that i'd also liked geology and geography when i was at school you know sort of collecting fossils and, and looking at rocks when we'd go on long walks around the coast so the combination of those two ideas seemed to fit quite nicely towards mining engineering. My mum wanted me to become an accountant and perhaps a banker, uh, which I thought would be boring and sat in an office. But the idea of traveling around the world and working in mines was really interesting to me. And even if it was uh, probably the last career choice that she suggested that I take. But no, that, that got me into the idea of becoming a mining engineer. And I went to the Royal School of Mines at Imperial College. And uh, uh, and did a degree and then looked for a job towards the end of that uh, that process. It was not the greatest time to be graduating in the mining industry. Uh, metal prices were pretty depressed. There wasn't a lot of interest from from mining companies to be taking on graduates back in those days. And, but uh, I, had, I had a few interviews. I spent a long time trying to get into the, uh, the British coal industry, the National Coal Board, which was uh, state-owned at the time and had just come out of a, a long strike. But fortunately, they, they refused to take me because, because I'm from the south part of, of the UK. They said, you'd struggle to work with all these northern miners who are, <laughs> are rough and tough. Which is not to say that the Southerners can't be rough and tough, but we speak like we've you know just come out of a, a TV commercial. So no, so I looked around and uh, there were a few positions available in the South African gold mining industry, which I went down to and uh, and worked underground there for and in projects, I guess, so underground and in projects for getting on for close to eight years before I left. So 
I describe it to people as, look, I'm, I'm pleased about the choice of degree I did, and I'm pleased about my early career choice. I'm glad I started in the mining industry, but I'm also glad I stopped. I'd always sort of wanted to get towards finance, but uh, it was good to have some, some experience under my belt before I uh, went into finance. So you actually went down into the mines and, and worked there as well. Do you think that that gives you a bit of a, a different understanding on when you talk about commodities? It gives you, I think, an intrinsic understanding of what's involved in digging the stuff out of the ground. I mean, my, my experience in mining was quite limited to one particular type of mining. So deep rock, underground, narrow, thin seam mining, um, which is not applicable to almost all of the mining that takes place around the world. But, you know, there's an expression in Afrikaans which says, a chat's a chat, which basically means a hole is a hole, a mine is a mine. The yeah. challenges that you face in one mine uh, are very similar to, um, to the challenges that you'll face in another. Um, so it gave me, I think, a, a, an intrinsic understanding. But it also gave me uh, an ability to make a bit of a rapport with mining company executives, particularly when you're going on field trips and, and they start you know, discussing aspects of the mine. And then you want to ask them a question which they really weren't expecting because they weren't expecting somebody who had had such a uh, you know a long technical background to to have come across so that was particularly useful when either I, I was working in an environment where we were taking investments in mines particularly development stage or early stage mines um, but also when i worked on the sales desk of a uh, a bullion bank and it was a gold trading bank when we were engaging with the the mining companies you know about hedging activities so as i had a decent understanding about the uh, both the mining process but also the likely delays and cost overruns and things that might result from them bringing new pr projects or expansions into into operation yeah so is, is that sort of that side uh, of mining what got you into finance or how did you ended up investing in gold yeah i mean it, it, it was a complicated process i guess I had a family member who was a stockbroker in the UK. He he was married to um, to my sister at the time, and and I and I when I was at university in London, I ended up spending a reasonable amount of time with them. And, and it certainly struck me as quite interesting. Also, the finance elements of the courses that I did at university, and also some of the shared projects that we did, the the mind design. I always ended up gravitating towards the financial modelling and the and, and and project viability type calculations. So. I was quite interested in that area. I then, it, when I was working in the mines in South Africa, I was, you know, booted off to head office for a couple of years to do project evaluation and, and worked quite closely with the finance teams there and uh, and, and had exposure to to the stockbrokers and, and sort of, should we say, the capital markets side of that of those organisations. And I found that very interesting. So, I, I was for the last few years of my mining career looking for the right opportunity to leave mining and and, and to get into in stockbroking, as it was described then, uh, to become an equity analyst to cover the South African gold mining companies. And and that's eventually what I did. And I, I did that for about four or five years with, you know, some success. Uh, one of the things that, that finance and mining seem to have in common is that there's not necessarily a lot of formal training. It's there's your, there's your seat, sit down, get on with it, become, you know, instant uh, equity analyst without without much in the way of guidance. So, yeah, was it just learning on the job? Or? Well, because you're because I've done project evaluation um, working for the mining companies, a lot there's a lot of similarities. Effectively, you're trying to value what a potential or even a current operation is worth to the mining company that owns it. 
And when you're an equity analyst, you're effectively trying to do the same thing. You're trying to value the company to see what it'd be worthwhile to a shareholder. So I'd done a lot of the uh, financial modeling and um, internal rates of return and net present value and all, all of those kind of issues. But what I didn't realize uh, as much was the degree to which one had to go out and market and sell your thoughts. Uh, I think I quite naively assumed that if you wrote a good report and sent it to everybody, they'd read it and say, oh, that's a good report. I'll act upon that and buy some shares through your company. Uh, the marketing aspect of it was, uh, was something I picked up. From that stockbroking position, um, you then moved on to, to a hedge fund. Um, how does a hedge fund use gold? Well, actually, there was, a, there was a section in between, which is when I moved across to London to become a, a gold commodity strategist working for UBS, which I did for 10 years. Um, and that was really quite a, quite a different move and set me up for my, for my later roles, both at a hedge fund and, and now at the World Gold Council. I, I'd been frustrated as a gold equity analyst in the late 1990s because the gold price was basically flat to heading lower. Um, that's a difficult environment to persuade people the merits of buying shares. And you can only tell them so many times to sell their shares because, you know, they, you, you've said it, they might have done it, but they certainly know what you're going to say. So I left stockbroking. I stopped being an equity analyst towards the end of 1999 when gold was kind of on its lows. Uh, and moved to a gold trading desk. It was by then UBS. They, they went through a series of mergers. Uh, but I, I went across with uh, UBS to be based in London, sitting on a gold trading desk. So what that meant is I was sitting next to a number of salespeople who interacted with lots of different clients. So mining companies for hedging, which was a big part of the business back in those days, but hedge funds as well. And uh, we had offices around the world, so it was a global business. We had traders around the world. We ran very large positions in, uh, in gold and, and gold derivatives. So again, a new career change. I'd obviously been following the gold market quite closely as a gold equity analyst, but I wasn't responsible for the forecast that came out of our commodity group. Now I'm you know, sitting on a desk having to engage with people and, and, and talking to them about what's happening in the market, what, why we are where we are, and more to the point where it's going to be going uh, on a three-month, six-month, five-year, 25-year view. Um, so I did, that for a, I did that for a total of about 10 years, eventually ending up as uh, a head of commodity strategy within the fixed income team at, at UBS. But unfortunately, UBS was uh, rather exposed, shall we say, to the subprime crisis, um, lost tens and tens of billions of, uh, of dollars by being invested in, in CDOs. And it had become a really frustrating place to work. You know, you, you, even, even before the financial crisis hit hard, um, each quarterly results uh, you know, release was like, oh, God, not again. Really? How much? Is that it? Are we finished now? Oh, next quarter? No, same again. Yeah. And gold, of course, was doing well uh, around the, the GFC, going up in anticipation of bad things happening. And then after some uh, some volatility around the fail failure of Lehman when it initially fell and then went up uh, relatively quickly again. So there were lots of funds, lots of investment groups, asset managers or whatever, that suddenly were much more interested in gold. So that was great. That gave me an opportunity to speak to lots of people and tell them my views. And uh, I received a few job offers over that period as well. And, and I took one working for a US hedge fund. Uh, I was based in London uh, and I was going to be their gold strategist. So uh, yeah, so that, that, was, that was quite a change and uh, a six or seven year period that I certainly shan't forget. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. You now work for the Gold uh, Council and of course, um, it's your job basically to love gold. 
But let's have a look from a little bit of an institutional investor uh, point of view. And uh, sometimes there's a little bit of reservation about gold as an asset. And a lot of it um, revolves around the idea of the difficulty of determining intrinsic value for, for gold. And so some investors see it a little bit as speculative because they don't uh, have the models in place to determine that. Do you think it's possible to to determine intrinsic value on a, on a consistent basis? Yeah, it's a good it's a good point. I mean, there's a number of ways you can approach this, and I think the key about your question was almost the last word you used there was on a consistent basis. If you're looking at where gold is going intraday, intramonth, maybe on a three to six month period, the most important factors behind it are financial market indicators, so strength of the dollar where interest rates are, maybe some measure of, of financial or geopolitical risk. And you can put together uh, a relatively simple model that can really help you guide whether gold is currently a bit cheap, a bit expensive, and where it might go if you have views on those underlying assets. Um, that's sort of the way that, that I've done it through most of my career. But at the World Gold Council, we're not really interested so much about why, where gold is going to go in the next one month, three months, six months. We're trying to make the case for gold um, as a strategic investment, as is something that should be in your portfolio. I, I should correct something from your question from before, by the way, is I'm not a gold lover, and I'm certainly not a gold bug. I'm not one of these uh, people that you'll see all over social media that's talking about end the Fed, the dollar's going to crash, everything should go into gold, and you go back onto the gold standard. I've never been like that, uh, and I never will. Well, unless conditions merit it, but they don't. Yeah. We don't see gold as an alternative to the financial system. Rather, it's a mainstream asset that, 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 that has a place within an investor's portfolio on a strategic basis. Now, if you're going to think about gold that way, you can look at historic returns. You can look at the benefits of having put it into the portfolio over the last 5, 10, 20 years back from 1971. And you can demonstrate that if you have had it, then it would have helped your portfolio. It would have increased the risk-adjusted return of that portfolio. Virtually every portfolio we've looked at around the world, doesn't matter which currency it, it, it's denominated in, doesn't really matter too much about the assets that it's got in there. The ideal proportion will vary depending on all those factors. But having, if you had had gold in your portfolio, it would have increased the risk-adjusted returns. It would have reduced drawdowns. It would have contributed a, a, a bit to returns and it reduced volatility a bit. So it would have been good. But that's history. And you know the marketing disclosure that goes at the bottom of every fund performance, which is past performance is no indication of the future. Well, that's true. Having, having said that, that's how most of finance operates and looks what's happened before and tries to extrapolate that into the future. But there's also considerable advantages or merit in, in looking at a valuation model, which can give you confidence the, the sort of numbers that you're putting in in terms of prospective returns um, are consistent with what's happened in the past and that the performance will be consistent with what's happened in the past. So at the World Gold Council, under one of my colleagues who's now head of research here, Juan Carlos Artigas, who's based out of New York, he'd been looking at a more comprehensive model, not, not just a few financial market factors in there, but, but trying to integrate the, the, the shorter-term drivers of gold with the longer supply and demand fundamentals. In the end, even though gold is a financial instrument and an asset class of its own, it's a commodity uh, which has stocks above ground, which has new mine production, it has recycling of old jewelry, and then it has these components of demand, all of which are driven by different factors. 
And we spent, I guess it was probably about three or four years internally, started actually before I got here, in developing a series of quantitative models um, that would attempt to take macroeconomic variables like GDP growth, like inflation, et cetera, and, and see which of those drove the various components of supply and demand with the idea of putting it together in a, in a large integrated model, which would allow you to forecast supply and demand and therefore the, the out of balance bit, in other words, is the more demand than supply, which would then allow you to iteratively adjust the model for different prices of gold to get an expected return. Now, we launched this, it's uh, the gold valuation framework, as we, as we call it, We've got a tool called Quorum, which is available on our website, uh, which allows you to put in your own macroeconomic variables, or use the default ones that we've sourced ex externally, and predict a return uh, for gold on a year by year basis, but also over the long term. Now, we find this very useful when we're trying to answer the question that you asked me. How do you think about gold in the long term? What assumptions should you put into a model uh, when you're thinking about an asset allocation decision? Historically, I think people have said either, I don't know, or hmm, let's put 0% real because it seems to maintain its value over the long term. Um, the work that we've done suggests that Depending on, depending on your macroeconomic inputs. But if you take a sort of conventional or consensus forecast of how the world will behave in the medium to longer term, you get a performance which is 2 to 3% above, uh, above inflation uh, as an expected return. And now that's lower than goals delivered since the end of the gold standard, but it's still better than zero real. And it's certainly better than I don't know. So we use this to, to demonstrate to investors why we can justify the sort of returns that we're, we're suggesting that gold should deliver over the medium to longer term and its, and its correlation characteristics and its diversification benefits based upon its previous performance uh, during certain periods of economic performance or, or, or stock market performance, et cetera. Yeah. So you're making the case for gold as, as a strategic long-term asset. So if we sort of think about gold as part of a multi-asset portfolio, so most of the institutional investors here or pension funds, they have a whole bunch of assets in the portfolio. What is sort of the role of gold? And, and I think as well from the perspective that we've seen anecdotally a couple of institutional investors around the world uh, starting to invest in gold where they hadn't necessarily invested in it before. So some sovereign wealth funds, some Canadian pension funds. But the use almost seemed like it was a disaster hedge. They saw increased volatility. They, they made an allocation to gold in the understanding that if everything becomes very, very turbulent and volatile, that, then gold is sort of a, a safe haven, a, a steady source of, of a store of value. What do you think that the proper role of gold is in a multi-asset portfolio? It's a good question because there is no one answer. From a strategic component or from a strategic approach, the first argument we make is that it's it's been a source of returns over the long term and that as i've described it has the uh, uh we have expected returns based on our valuation methodology that contribute to portfolio returns fine probably the biggest thing that it does in a portfolio though is it helps diversify this characteristic that it tends to do well when other assets are doing poorly reduces portfolio volatility and with a return contribution, it helps increase the risk-adjusted return of the portfolio. That portfolio diversification works particularly well when you need it the most. 
because gold's a good um, diversifier of equities. It's a very good diversifier of equities when they're falling fast. So combination of returns, diversification, and diversification that works when you really need it is the main thing to put in a portfolio. Now, more explicitly, it also does well during crises. A good example at the moment, Russia invades Ukraine. The gold price has been one of the best performing assets this year, beaten only by commodities, which makes sense if you think about what Russia exports and to a certain extent what, what Ukraine exports too. But it's not just this, it's not just geopolitics where it plays a role. If you look at how, look at how it performed during 2020, during the coronavirus pandemic, gold performed very well when other uh, markets were, were getting uh, hosed. And then similarly, the performance over the global financial crisis. So it's safe haven characteristics. It's disaster hedge is getting a bit hyperbolic, but it certainly helps protect your portfolio when bad things are happening to the rest of the portfolio. And then finally, one that we haven't had to speak about very much is that it is one of the assets that investors should have in their portfolio to help protect them against inflation. Now, it's not the only asset that, that, that you want to look at. Um, unlike in the 1970s, when, when gold did really well and inflation was really high, there are now other alternatives um, which exist, which will help protect your portfolio, particularly uh, inflation-protected government bonds. And in many respects, they're the best hedge against inflation because that's kind of exactly what they're designed to do. But gold has a lot of useful attributes as an inflation hedge as well. Um, and what we see smart institutional investors doing is not putting all their eggs in one basket when it comes to inflation hedging, but, but looking at a mix of inflation-protected uh, bonds, some real assets, some gold, and maybe some commodities. Yeah. Because inflation comes in different colors and you're not quite sure what color the inflation is going to come from. Yeah. But let's talk a little bit about that relationship with inflation, because I think the Gold Council has put some research out as well, where they looked over a relatively long time what the relationship was between the gold price and inflation. And it seemed that it, it, it's quite a nuanced sort of relationship. It's mm. not a one-on-one -on -one sort of correlation. And, and to a degree, I think this research found as well that actually gold seemed to be more uh, correlated to the money supply. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It is nuanced. And that was what I was talking about before, about different flavors of inflation. One of the things that, 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 that you hear quite frequently from financial market commentators is that oh, gold isn't a very good hedge of CPI, US CPI. And that's true when there hasn't been very much CPI. So if you look, I don't know, the last 20 years, 25 years, inflation's been low, Gold isn't correlated to that because gold's been driven by other factors because people aren't buying it because of inflation. They're buying it because of other reasons. When inflation has been high, particularly the 70s period, then you actually do see a pretty decent uh, correlation because at that point, investors are thinking about, you know, investors in gold uh, are really determining the market because they're, you know, they're, they're focused on inflation and looking for hedges against it. But the invention of the tips market probably reduces that um, relationship that we saw historically, simply because investors have other alternatives now. So they won't be turning to gold first, they might be turning to gold as well, but it won't be the immediate thing that they'll be looking to hedge their portfolios with, well, which, which makes perfect sense. If you look at a longer term chart, gold has gone up. And if you look at an inflation index, inflation index has gone up. And that's fine. So you, you know, it has held its value over the long term and more 
but the best statistical correlation if you if you're looking at measures of inflation or factors of inflation it's not us cpi it's not global cpi it's not global money supply growth the best um, correlated uh, with the highest confidence level uh, is with us money money supply growth and that's interesting because money supply growth has actually grown a lot faster than inflation uh, over the long term and gold has grown a lot faster than than inflation um, over the long term. And the long term in this context, we're talking 1971 when we came off the gold standard because comparisons before then don't really don't really make sense, I think. Yep. So not only has gold delivered a return that's been you know similar to, slightly more than similar to USM2 growth, um, but it's also its returns have been better correlated to 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 changes in money supply, USM2 uh, money supply growth. So that's something to bear in mind. Um, and could become an interesting factor um, as the Fed not only hikes rates, which I'm less concerned about because you know that's coming, that's obvious, and that's a pro- part of a process that we're going to see through, certainly through the balance of 2022. But quantitative tightening, I'll be paying a lot of attention to what happens to money supply uh, growth uh, in the US as QT kicks in. And certainly it's one of the factors I think that helped gold in 2020 when we saw the extraordinary monetary policy. And now we're going to see that attempted to be withdrawn. Uh, money supply growth is still growing at the moment, but not not at the speed and pace that it was uh, in 2020. So it should be an interesting time. But that is one of the points about, about the gold industry. There are so many different components that drive gold. I mean, I, I've over my career, I've spent time looking at commodity markets, equity markets, credit markets, bond markets, inflation, and, uh, well, more recently, coronavirus vaccines. There's lots of things, I think, that somebody that's deeply in the market, in the gold market, like I am, has to spend his time looking at, which is, well, that's why it stops it being boring. But it's one of the reasons why gold councils here is that it, it means that other people don't have to spend all their time doing what I'm doing. So there are lots of drivers of the gold price, um, but that correlation with the money supply, it seems to be quite an important one. Does that also mean that it correlates heavily with uh, the US monetary policy? Or what is the correlation there? The best short term, so coming back to the short term drivers, the best short term driver uh, or financial market indicator that correlates the best with gold price performance has been real US interest rates. Uh, and the one that I look at, it, it's either the real 10 year uh, treasury yield or the real five year treasury yield. Certainly over the last post GFC, the real 10 year has been, been a bit better. But that doesn't mean that all, it, all that gold is is a replacement for a real treasury um, uh, and inflation protection security because you get periods of quite wide divergence. And, and one of the things that we've certainly been highlighting in the last few days, although it's been a, a feature of the last month or so, has been a big rise in, in real US yields. And yet the gold price has, st- has stayed steady and even gone higher, which, again, is the sort of thing that keeps you on your toes because something's changed. Something is causing gold to be stronger than you would expect by looking at these simple models. I'm not 100% sure what that thing or what those things are. I mean, I think it's logical to assume that some safe haven buying going on. We've seen some announcements from central banks that they bought gold. Central banks that I wouldn't necessarily have expected to buy gold at the start of the year. Um, So that might be playing a role as well. But there could be other factors at work as well. I don't really want to speculate too much about them because uh, I'm still trying to work out what they are. Yeah, the conflict uh, in the Ukraine, that type of event or geopolitical events more in general, 
what sort of effect do they have on the gold price over the longer term? Because in the short term, that there's obviously a reaction to it. But when you sort of take those decades long view, do you see those events have actually a substantial impact on the price or are they more sort of blips in a, in a trend? I think it entirely depends upon outcomes. If a regional war is either resolved quickly or turns into a stalemate and, and, and the, the global economy go, go back to uh, the status quo that existed before, then there's probably not much impact on, on the long-term returns to gold, both absolute and relative. But if we're getting to a situation in a conflict where there is a semi-permanent change in the structure of the economy, so I don't know, higher defense spending, um, less globalization, persistence or intermittent interruptions to, to commodity supply, um, higher cost of doing business because of marine insurance is expensive because your ships might get blown up, etc. Then you can paint a picture where the economy is affected in, 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 in the medium to longer term. And really, that's the transition mechanism through to, to gold. It's it's not so much about what happens with a let's say one-off terrorist attack that, that that takes out a key piece of infrastructure in a, an important country that makes people worried in, overnight and makes them buy gold. Yeah, that can have a a short-term impact that could last weeks or months. But if there is a a regime shift or a paradigm shift taking place in the economy at the moment, where you know I'm old enough to remember uh, the Cold War. And, and how the structures of the, the global economy worked um, back in the 70s and the 80s. And one of the reasons that the global economy has, has benefited so much or has performed so well in the last 30, 40 years is we've had this big peace dividend. And it's not just from lower military spending, but it's from a greater integrated global economy. That might pause, reverse, and, and some aspects of that be under threat, I think, as people revisited... Uh, supply disruptions associated with the coronavirus pandemic, add supply interruptions um, or feedstock or commodity interruptions as a result of hostile powers. Um, and as I say, I think that, that that could reverse some of the, the the gains that we've seen. So if we end up with a global economy with a, a lower growth potential and a higher inflationary backdrop, yeah, that'll have an impact on, on long-term gold returns as well as long-term returns of everything else, really. Yeah. I want to discuss as well with you something that has probably a bit more recent that uh, has come into play, and that is cryptocurrencies. Sometimes it's hailed as a digital gold in, in the sense that it could be a store of a value. What, what is your opinion on that comparison between gold and cryptocurrency? The first reaction, the soundbite is, oh, that's nonsense. <laughs> and the reason I'd say it's nonsense is by looking at how gold performs and how crypto assets perform um, during market sell-offs, during corrections. The correlation between Bitcoin, et cetera, um, and the NASDAQ is at its all-time high now. So as we've seen the correction coming through, it started late last year as people realized that inflation was coming through faster and longer than they were expected and that the Fed would have to move soon and fast. Tech stocks corrected, Bitcoin corrected. And that correlation is really good. So it's not behaving like a store of value. It's behaving like a risk on asset. The more nuanced answer, though, is there are elements of particularly Bitcoin's um, design which seem to aim to mimic 
um, the scarcity of supply of a of a scarce commodity. And and if you think about it from from gold's perspective, you mine gold, it never goes away. You produce Bitcoin, it never goes away. Yeah. You add to your stock of gold by about 1.7, 1.8% per annum, about 206,000 tons of gold out there, about 3,800 tons of production each year. And that's not going to change very much in terms of its production rate. It might, gold production might grow a bit each year as it's done over the last 10 years. Other people suggesting that it's going to stabilize and maybe decline a bit, but the key is a bit. So you've got a reasonable expectation of what mine supply is going to contribute to the pool of gold that's available. You've got a mathematical certainty about how much Bitcoin is going to be produced. They call it mined. Don't see too many explosives been used in it. Um, <laughs> so how much Bitcoin is being going to be produced until 2140 when it stops being produced? So it'll you know slow down, taper and taper and taper. So that by design, Bitcoin is scarce and supply growth is known. So it's a, I don't know, you can't inflate it away. You can't suddenly, you know, cut Bitcoin interest rates and start doing QE. Any of those factors, that's just, you know, that's just none of that's going to happen. But that's about where the, where the comparisons end. I, I mean, one of the things I would say, if you look at the use cases of Bitcoin and what they're actually being used for, it is being used as a speculative asset. And certainly there are some buyers of gold that treat gold as a speculative asset. Uh, so there's a bit of an overlap there. But as I've said to many people, you don't buy gold expecting to end up with a Lamborghini at the end of the year. Uh, you don't buy gold expecting to make 5,000% this quarter. That's not going to happen. See, I told you I wasn't a, a gold bug. Um, <laughs> you buy gold because you think, as a speculator, you might be able to profit from, uh, from a, I don't know, 10, 20, 30% move uh, in the short term. Great. But that's very different from crypto assets. Uh, I remember seeing, seeing a tweet from somebody about performance of stock markets. Um, talking about, you know, Black Monday saw saw equity markets fall, whatever it was, 30%. Crypto markets, they just call that Monday <laughs> because of the difference in volatility, which is another factor yes. too. I mean, you talk about um, store of value, hard to have a store of value with something that's got an implied volatility of 50 to 150%. It's a speculative asset. And it's not a safe haven because it doesn't behave like one when bad things happen. So it's not a threat to gold. In fact, what we say to people who have put Bitcoin into a portfolio or other crypto assets, it's like, fine. If you've held this over the last five years or whatever, you've done very well. Um, but what you have done is you've made your portfolio a lot more risky. And the more, por more your portfolio becomes risky, the more diversification you need in there to, to try and damp down that volatility and, uh, uh, and reduce drawdowns. I might finish up with uh, uh, one more investment question. And I know that the World Gold Council does, doesn't like to put one uh, sort of player in, in the industry before the other. But from your experience and, and sort of thinking from that multi-asset portfolio of a pension fund, are there certain ways that are uh, more conducive for a multi-asset portfolio to implement an investment than others, like stock versus commodity versus mm. ETF? What is your thought on that? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> There are lots of ways to gain exposure to gold. Um, and I think what I, when I get this question, I ask people, say, well, what are you trying to achieve here? Are you trying to, to benefit from the characteristics of putting gold into a portfolio? Or are you trying to play that plus a company or a mining equity view as well? Because they're very different things. You invest in gold, you know, it is 
exposure to the gold price for all, and all the things that we've discussed. If you're buying a gold mining company, you get an exposure to the gold price, but you get an exposure to working costs or operating cost increases. You get an exposure to potential discoveries. You get an exposure to um, political risk from where your, your, your mines are operating. So they're, they're quite different. S some similarities, but, but quite different. We're agnostic. We, we're not pushing any type of product or any one product. We're associated with, with one of the ETFs, actually two of the ETFs, which uh, we developed and helped develop back in the early 2000s. But you know, we're not for profit, so we're agnostic from that perspective. What typically happens for an institutional investor, you know, if, if they go down the gold journey, recognize the benefits that gold could be in a portfolio, and decide to make an allocation to it, there's probably three different routes that they would take. If they trade futures and hold futures positions, then they might do it via a futures market, specifically probably the COMEX futures market, because it's the big liquid one, although there are others in India and China and Japan, et cetera. They might look at exchange-traded funds because they're, they exist in pretty much all of the jurisdictions where most investors want to, want to invest in. And then they might look at making an allocated gold um, purchase. In other words, buying gold in the over-the-counter market and then storing it with a repository on an allocated basis, which removes the credit risk, has a cost associated with it, but removes the credit risk. Personally, the things you've got to take into consideration when you make those decisions comes around liquidity, flexibility, and cost. Uh, futures, very liquid, very flexible. But if you're going to hold them for the long term, the roll cost of a future, you know, remember when oil traded negative in, back in 2020 because of a, a contract expiring a roll, well, I'm not saying it's going to happen in gold, but certainly you can end up paying 100, 200 at, at extremes. 500 basis points a year to hold gold via futures for the long term. So people tend not to do that anymore. You can look at ETFs. Low-cost ETFs start at about 10 basis points. Um, the highest-cost ones I can remember are about 50 basis points. The big liquid ones um, tend to be between 25 and 40 basis points. So that's probably a lot cheaper than, uh, than futures. Liquidity is okay because they tap into the underlying liquidity of the OTC market. So even if only a couple of billion dollars uh, turning over in the, uh, the global ETFs on a daily basis, somebody will create a load of ETFs or, or destroy a load of ETFs. You've got the whole $100 billion underlying gold market to access. Um, so that's quite good. But if you're going to hold gold in the long term as a strategic component of the portfolio, let's say you've decided to put 7% of your portfolio in gold, and that's going to be uh, your strategic allocation, and you might put a tactical one up or above or below that. Maybe you would say, okay, fine. I don't want to pay 25 or 40 basis points per annum. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to either convert that ETF into or switch that ETF into OTC gold positions and allocate them with a, with a, uh, a safe custodian. It'd be less than 10 basis points for an institutional portfolio and could be quite a lot less than that. Now, you wouldn't want to do that if you were going to be rebalancing that portfolio every month. So maybe if you've got an ideal 7% allocation uh, as a strategic allocation, but you might flex that up and down by 2%, maybe you put 5% of it into an allocated gold uh, and keep the other 2% uh, in ETFs, which you can flex up or down much more easily. So yeah. those are the sorts of conversations and think thought processes that you need to go through to add gold to an institutional portfolio. Yeah. So there's a bit of a trade-off between flexibility and, and cost. And I think uh, here in Australia, we might see a bit of an influence of the, the regulator who uh, is trying to get costs down. So that might influence the decision as well. 
Well, John, thank you very much for your time. It was great talking to you. Photo, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.